Welcome back, everyone, to the Low Tree Podcast. This episode is on the philosopher king Marcus Aurelius. Can you tell us about Marcus Aurelius? Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic philosopher and Roman emperor from uh, 161 AD to 180 AD. He was the last of the five good emperors and also notably the last emperor of what's called Pax Romana, which is a 200-year golden age, which started with Caesar Augustus and ended with Marcus Aurelius. As we see, his corrupt son, Commodus, comes into power. If anyone's seen Gladiator, then they'll recognize these characters. Exactly. I know him from the Gladiator. Are you ready to do your duty for Rome? Yes, Father. You will not be emperor. Now, having read his meditations, we have a completely different insight into this person's thinking, his philosophy, and he truly was a philosopher king. So this episode, we're going to read some selected quotes from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which is a 12-chapter book. It's a short book, just his personal notes on his Stoic philosophy. And so we're going to begin by just saying a little bit about Marcus Aurelius and then some background into Stoicism. Although many of you may have already heard about Stoicism, because as recently its ethical side has become very popular among athletes, military, and so forth. Stoicism is a very practical philosophy, and Marcus Aurelius is a perfect practitioner of it, since he, uh, his reign was notably heavy with military conflict. And much like today's pandemic, um, he went through what's called the Antonine Plague in 165. It killed approximately 5 million people. I think we can find many comparisons and correspondences with today's time dealing with the coronavirus pandemic and external problems which we don't have control over. So the basic idea of Stoicism is two principles. One is the principle of nature and the other is principle of mind. And those two principles are in the context of time. So there was a very strong component of Stoic philosophy which believed which believed in living in the moment and understanding the importance of the moment and not being wrapped up in future in the past. Another main tenet of Stoic philosophy is mental fortitude and courage because Stoic philosophy, um, it adopted the four cardinal virtues from Aristotle, which were wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. And so these four virtues were considered the purpose of human life in the aim of rational thinking. It is to live according to nature, which means to adopt these virtues in one's life. This nature is the order of existence. In Stoic philosophy, this is called the logos. The logos is the order of existence in which all of our human rationality stems from. Logos actually means word, um, but it also means rational mind or thought, uh, the intellectual principle. Now, if we compare some of these philosophical premises to the modern usage of the word stoic, we find it's quite different. People refer to stoicism or, or the, the word stoic refers to someone who's indifferent to pain, pleasure, grief, joy, and so on. Someone who's indifferent to emotion or someone who represses their feelings or endures those feelings. Now, in contrast to that is the, the term Epicurean, which is one who delights and lives for pleasure. 
in any case, just wanted to um, contrast r- r- the real philosophy of Stoicism with sort of its maybe its modern usage or the maybe misconceptions of Stoicism that are present. It's a very rich philosophy which goes back to being in harmony with nature, which deals with virtue as the highest ideal, which posits uh, being in, in control of the mind, that the mind leads, and so on. And we'll get into some of the statements of Marcus Aurelius, who is the best representative of Stoic philosophy. Exactly. The common misconception is that Stoics must bury their emotions, bottle them up, and that is actually, actually not what they're saying. Emotions are a natural thing, and you must live according to nature. However, you cannot let your emotions overcome you and overcome your rational mind. Marcus Aurelius says, body, soul, intelligence. He says, to the body belong sensations, to the soul, appetites, to the intelligence, principles. To receive the impressions of forms by means of appearances belongs even to animals. To be pulled by the strings of desire belongs to both wild beasts and to men. There remains that which is peculiar to the good man, to be pleased and content with what happens and with the thread which is spun for him, and to not defile the divinity which is planted in his breast, nor disturb it by a crowd of images, but to preserve it tranquil, following it obediently as a god, neither saying anything contrary to the truth, nor doing anything contrary to justice. And if all men refuse to believe that he lives a simple, modest, and contented life, he is neither angry with any of them, nor does he deviate from the way which leads to the end of life, to which a man ought to come pure, tranquil, ready to depart, and without any compulsion, perfectly reconciled to his lot. So in this section, we see that he divides human life into three different domains, the bodily, the physical domain, the, the domain of the soul, which is somewhere in between, which is the animal self, and then the intelligence, which is particularly belongs to man. And with that intelligence, the human being or man can perform good or evil. Now, this division of the human isn't unique to Stoic philosophy. I have to say it does trace back to Aristotle, who, who divides the human being into the mineral, vegetal, animal, and finally the rational souls. Now, the difference between the human and all of the rest of existence is, of course, the rational faculty. Across history, we see that, that this was seen as a, divine, as a divine faculty because it wasn't present anywhere else in nature. And not defiling the divinity means not planting in your, not thinking about things which do not lead to virtue because elsewhere in the meditations he talks about, he talks about your thoughts that become your actions and your actions become your character. One of the major principles we find in this passage is the emphasis on preserving the tranquility of mind, not disturbing the mind with a crowd of images. So the Stoics weren't impassioned with life, but they were tranquil in their emotionals. They had, they had balance, a balanced constitution of body, mind, and soul, or, or here intelligence. So this, this balance is what they're trying to achieve, and this is the cause, which is also very Aristotelian, which is to bring all things into harmony using the, the principle of justice to, to balance all the, the, the human constitution with the principle of wisdom or the principle of intellect. 
Now, this principle of rationality helps one maintain harmony within oneself in relation to one's emotions, and especially in relation to external events, because whenever we are faced with external challenges and problems, the stoic ideal is to deal with it rationally and to never let and to never let our emotions or our desires or fears get the hold of us. Now, all that has been said up into this point with in terms of harmonizing the constitution, if we look at it and we take it a step further and we compare it to some principles in Islamic philosophy and mysticism, we find that really this encapsulates the principle of the transcendence of the soul. So when the soul becomes transcendent, it reaches a place, even in the Quran, we have the term the, the tranquil soul, which is one of the stages of the perfect self. So the word tranquil is considered to be a stage of the soul of, of a very lofty plane of the human being where the soul becomes not impassioned, but becomes impervious to influences, outside external influences and, and internal influences. And in this way, the soul is like a clear pond which can see the bottom. It has clarity so that it can reflect the images of the divine. This is what it really is referring to when we look at whether it's Stoic philosophy or other schools of philosophy with, which posit the same sort of idea of the, of the tranquil soul. Again, we can relate this back to the Stoic idea of logos, which permeates existence. If the tranquil soul reflects God, it must also reflect nature. There are two principles, again, we can compare with Islamic philosophy. One is the principle of the intellect or logos, which is we find in narrations and hadith of the prophet, which, who, who says that the first thing that God created was the intellect. And this is a, a big principle, and really even in Aristotelian, Platonic schools, and Islamic philosophy of the first intellect. This idea that the universe has a mind. There's an absolute eternal principle of mind, of intellect. That's one principle. The second is the idea of nature. And the word that is used for nature in the Islamic tradition is fitra. Fitra means the primordial nature, innate disposition. And that all things have been given in an innate disposition or a primordial nature through which they move and they reach their ultimate destinations. So all things are moving through existence and it is on account of their intrinsic nature that they move. Now this is all happening within the context of time. If we look at another quote, he says, For look at the immensity of time behind thee and to the time which is before thee, another boundless space. In this infinity, then what is the difference between him who lives three days and him who lives three generations? So here is the key principle of the single moment in Stoic philosophy. Let us ask ourselves, if we were given a thousand years to live, how different would we live and how different would the outcome be? Because we're all creatures of habit, we're tied down to it and we're tied down to our old practices. What we do daily is what we will continue doing daily. And secondly, we see our future selves as a different person. For the most of us, it's very hard for us to imagine the steps it takes to become that future person. We'll always put it off to the next day. It's another level of existential procrastination. Either we have a future vision of ourselves that we cannot reach, and we don't know the steps that it takes to reach that, or we don't have a vision of ourselves, and if we don't have a vision, then we just are creatures of habit. 
And I think this is this is the, the really the stumbling block for most people for real change, existential change. And what we mean by change is really just arriving at a better version of yourself at all, all the time. Just like you are physically maturing and growing, the soul also needs to grow. The mind needs to grow. The imagination needs to grow. All of the inward and outward faculties need growth and change. They need to develop and evolve. Human, the human being has been built for evolution. The human being has been created for change and development. That's where perfection lies. Even though we, in the very beginning, we talked about tranquility of the soul, the tranquility is a disposition. Tranquility means not being vexed by exteriors or being troubled. It doesn't mean that you are impervious to change. You want to change for the better while maintaining that tranquility. So these are the two things that must be maintained. They're not opposites to each other. And when we see change, we often think of massive life changes that we must make for ourselves. And it's really not always in the, in the bigger life changes. It's a lot of the times it's these small habitual things that can get us started. It's like a little spark that can spur on later existential changes in our lives. Exactly. The, the small micro changes, the changes, the shifts in attitude, just doing things a slightly differently, looking at things in a new light. And that has an accumulative effect in, in your whole uh, vision of, of life. Let me now read my favorite passage in the whole of, of the meditations. Why don't you go ahead and read this part? In the morning, when you rise unwillingly, let this thought be present. I am rising to the work of a human being. Why then am I dissatisfied if I'm going to do the things for which I exist and for which I was brought into the world? Imagine this. He says that when you wake, at the, wake up in the morning unwillingly, then you have to think that I'm rising to become a human being. Why then am I dissatisfied if I'm going to do the things for which I exist? It means that I'm going to become myself. I'm rising to myself. And the reason why I was brought into this world was to become human. Why am I dissatisfied with this fate? And he says, Or have I been made for this, to lie in the bedclothes and keep myself warm? But this is more pleasant. Do you then exist to take your pleasure and not at all for action or exertion? Do you not see the little plants, the little birds, ants, spiders, and bees working together to put in order the several parts of the universe? And if you are unwilling to do the work of a human being, do you not then make haste to do that which is according to your nature? This is such a beautiful passage. He's saying that everything in the universe is working. The ants, the spiders, the insects, the bees, they're all working together to put together this universe. And why is it that the human being should feel lazy and not play his or her part in the grand scheme of the universe? Why should you not rise to your own humanity and, and, and remain uh, apathetic, remain uh, lazy, and not take action, not take you know, personal, and, and this, is, this is on a personal level. If there's some, something that you want to do, you want to learn a new language, you want to learn a musical instrument, you want to read a book, whatever it is you want to do, why is it that we procrastinate and why is it that we let our lives slip by and not accomplish the things we want to accomplish? He says, but it is necessary to take rest also. It is necessary. However, nature has fixed bounds to this too. She has fixed bounds both to eating and drinking. And yet you go beyond these bounds, beyond what is sufficient, yet in your acts it is not so. 
but you stop short of what you cannot do. So you love not yourself. If you did, you would love your nature and her will. So he's saying that both that if you loved yourself, you would love to improve yourself and you would love nature and be in harmony with nature. So you, you would respect nature. You would expect its bounds. You would respect the, the principles of eating and drinking and finding rest. But at the same time, you would know that within the matrix of nature, there is the human principle which needs work. And if we relate this to the Stoic virtues, we can relate it to temperance in the temperance for resting. We also can relate it to courage because in the beginning he talks about the fear of getting up out of your bed in the morning and facing the world. But those who love their several arts exhaust themselves in working at them unwashed and without food. But you value your own nature less than the turner values the turning art or the dancer the dancing art or the lover of money values his money or the vainglorious man his little glory and such men when they have a violent affection to a thing choose neither to eat nor to sleep rather than to perfect the things which they care for but are the acts which concern society more vile in your eyes and less worthy of your labor so here the stoic philosophy can be encapsulated in exertion in work in work to perfect oneself because this and this comes not for the sake of work or the sake of exertion but the sake of from the from the base from the origin of love it is because you love yourself you have a self-worth you love nature you see the value of things you see the value of time you see that you see the purpose of your existence and this is why you work not because of work itself or because um you are you are incapable of expressing emotion as popularly known you work because you respect existence and by respecting existence you have to respect yourself which is a part of existence and to respect yourself you have to attain virtue and align yourself with nature he further says, do you not see how many qualities you are immediately able to exhibit in which there is no excuse of natural incapacity or unfitness and you still remain voluntarily below the mark? Now, if exertion is for its own sake, for the love of things, for the love of life, there is also an aspect of service to others. Now, he says that there are three types of people who work. He says, one man, when he has done a service to another, is ready to set it down to his account as a favor conferred. Another is not ready to do this, but still in his own mind he thinks of the man as his debtor. A third, in a manner, does not even know what he has done, but he is like a vine which has produced grapes, and he seeks nothing more after it has once produced its proper fruit. So this is the principle of doing things for the very fact that it is good, doing it for the good itself, not for an external reward or for praise or for or or to make someone feel indebted to you or or some other egotistical motive to feel good but not to feel good but because it is good in itself so this is a very subtle principle that is found in, in many religious schools of thought whether it's Taoism or or Islam or Christianity what have you we find that man the human being does good or should do good for itself because it is good. So this is the principle of virtue, is worthy of being done. And that man is worthy of doing the good. 
So therefore, he is he does good because of worthiness, not because of some external thing. And in the Islamic tradition, we have a hadith which says that actions are according to intentions. Rather, they are the action itself. So the measure of an act is the intention with which it is done, not the act itself. Even if a person doesn't complete an act, there is a virtue in the intent to do the good because it is good. And why is there any virtue in just intention? It's because it's just like Marcus Aurelius says, he says, your thoughts become your actions and your actions become your character. So therefore we can understand that our thoughts in turn become our character. And if our intentions are pure, then our character must also be pure. And if we compare this to the Islamic principle, this is the idea of the unity between the manifestation and the one who manifests. So there is a thing, so this, it is the soul which is manifesting the act. But if that manifestation doesn't find a, a place or a time or a condition to become manifest externally, it still exists on the plane of the soul. So this is, this is, and this is a very subtle thing that moving forward, a person should think all good things, whether they have the capacity to fulfill them or not. They should have dreams and dream big because those dreams will be realized one way or another, whether in this life or in the next. And you are the collectivity of your thoughts and intentions, more so than your physical, physical being. You may not have all the means to do the good things that you want to do in life, but if you intend to do them, you will see those fruits and those will become realities in the hereafter when the body will, will, will disappear or dissipate and the soul will arise. He says, about what am I employing my own soul? On every occasion, I must ask myself this question and inquire, what have I now in this part of me, which they call the ruling principle? And whose soul have I now, that of a child, or of a young man, or of a feeble woman, or of a tyrant, or of a domestic animal, or of a wild beast? Exactly. So what is the ruling principle of your soul? Is the ruling principle of your soul hope? Is it fear? Is it yearning? Is it beauty? Is it anger? Is it a principle, a bestial principle, a childlike, and so on? Or is it a principle of the sage, of the intelligent? of goodness, of virtue, or of the courageous. So what are the ruling principles that constitute your soul? Those are the things which are your reality. Even if you don't possess those qualities now, if you meditate on them, and if you embody them slowly, they will become a part of you. Just think of yourself as being wealthy, and you will become wealthy. Wealthy in spirit, even if it's not in physical, uh, material wealth. Just think of yourself as being courageous and eventually you will acquire that quality. And God will also bring that out in you. He who has a good opinion of himself, he'll realize that principle. So my personal advice to the listeners and, and ourselves is that always have a good opinion of yourself. Always have a good opinion of the world and good things will happen to you. He says, for if any man should conceive certain things as being really good, such as prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, he would not, after having first conceived these, endure to listen to anything which should not be in harmony with what is really good. Because now his soul has become accustomed to the good. It has been accustomed to justice and temperance and fortitude. So he cannot sit and listen or and be in harmony with which is not good. He says, 
All things are linked with each other and bound together with a sacred bond. There is one orderly, graceful disposition of the whole. There is one God in the whole. There is one substance, one law, and one reason common to all intelligent beings, and one truth. As there must be one sort of perfection to all beings who are of the same nature and partake of the same rational power. Everything material shall soon vanish and be swallowed up in the matter of the whole. Every active principle shall soon be resumed into the intelligence and cause of the whole. And the memory of everything shall be soon buried in eternity. In the rational being, the same conduct is agreeable to nature and agreeable to reason. As the several members are in an organized body, such are all rational beings, although distant in place, since both are fitted for one joint operation. This thought will more deeply affect your heart if you often speak to yourself thus, I am a member of that great rational body or system. If you merely call yourself a part of mankind, you don't yet love mankind from your heart, nor does the doing of good yet ultimately delight you without further views. You only do good as a matter of duty and obligation, and not as doing at the same time the greatest good to yourself. This quote has led many scholars to equate Stoicism and Stoic ontology with pantheism, pantheism being the view that the universe and everything is God. However, it's also important to keep in mind that all of these labels are modern creations, and therefore none of them apply perfectly. The god of Stoicism doesn't fit neatly into any modern theological box. In addition, Marcus Aurelius, he quotes, God, the gods, Zeus, and nature. So it's difficult to say whether or not he was, in fact, pantheistic, panentheistic, or any other pan terms. Nevertheless, we find in this, in this passage that he does posit a single god, a single deity, an order, a single order of the universe, which is all in harmony with the major monotheistic traditions. Now, in closing, I just want to say that one of the reasons why we chose this philosopher is that any, you know, we, we know about Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and a lot of the more famous uh, philosophers that are read regularly. But, but these are some of the obscure thinkers that uh, have you know, treasures and gems. We wanted to revive the teachings and the thoughts of what we consider to be truly a, a great thinker, a sage, a great philosopher. He's a man who has perfectly embodied his own philosophy in the most practical sense. And he has established a philosophy which emphasizes ethics, which is something which we can all benefit from, especially in the modern day. I think in summary, we can find two key principles, two takeaways from this philosophy. One is hard work, and the second is to follow your true principle. Let us close by the following quote. Let anyone do or say whatever he pleases. I must be a good man. Just as if the gold, the emerald, or the purple were always saying, let men do or say as they please. I must continue in emerald and retain my luster. Thank you for listening to the Low Tree Podcast, and we'll see you next time.